0: My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Jim Knight. He is a renowned keynote speaker, author, and training and development expert who teaches organizations of all sizes how to attain their own rock star status. And if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you can see uh, Jim's hair. He is definitely got the uh, rock star persona going on here, and you know, I'm not sure if you're a native Floridian, but the the fact that you started off at Gatorland Zoo, uh, you know, I'm I'm native to Orlando, Florida, so uh, I grew up going to Gatorland Zoo, so that's uh, that's pretty freaking cool.
1: Yeah, Um, I actually am. I'm a native Central Floridian. Grew up in Kissimmee. I live in uh, Winter Garden, so right down the road from you now, but. yeah, and that was my very first job at uh, 15 years old. So the fact that you've been there, I don't know if your audience is going what there's there's actual working gator farms. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the best kept secrets in in Florida.
0: Yeah, and you know I, I don't know, uh, and I can't remember the year that it, it burned burned up. But um, I, I actually I was working for uh, uh, Orange County Fire Rescue at that time and man, it was getting it. Uh, Yeah.
1: It's actually almost burned down twice. I mean, at one point, it just had in the front uh, this big, obviously, replica of an alligator's mouth that people would walk in. That was the entrance. I remember that, and just the retail store had caught on fire, but then I want to say it was probably seven, eight years ago, maybe was the last time that it had caught on fire, and I was just going by there the other week. They still have that they've rebuilt that alligator mouth but it's just over to the side now they have people come in a different entrance I think that thing is pretty iconic but you know you can't stop that thing that is actually one of the biggest uh actual working alligator farms and like I said you're from central Florida you know everybody thinks of Disney and Universal and SeaWorld but there's like 27 different theme parks here that one you can get you can get through that in about a half a day but it is kind of a cool thing to go and do yeah it's pretty i mean i i taken my daughter
0: there uh yeah it's, oh, yeah it's pretty awesome um but where you got most of your professional experience was um you know in the hospitality industry doing yeah. training and uh you know did you i guess 20 years with hard rock is that accurate
1: yeah pretty close 21 21 years yeah yeah man
0: well you know, I, I want to dig into some of your experience and really how you uh, developed your your programs and and how you have found to best develop these high performing rock star teams. And uh, yeah, man, um, I I, I want to start off though with you know where you were born and raised. And you said Kissimmee, you're about the same age as me. And back then, uh, Kissimmee was just kind of like a, a a cow town.
1: It is. It sort of still is. I mean, it certainly has been built up. I remember in uh, 1983, it was uh, that county that we lived in, Osceola, was one of the fastest growing counties in the nation. You know, everybody came once, once uh, Disney got there and that was uh, 1971. So I've been there since 67. You're right. A lot of my friends are, are uh, ranchers. They're cowboys. Like I literally remember downtown Kissimmee. People would pull up, you know, riding a horse and they tied their horse to a a real honest to goodness hitching post and go inside and go shopping in this little strip that was downtown. But obviously the thing started growing and Disney made a massive impact in central Florida everywhere. But that place is pretty much blown up now. Um, I I was in Kissimmee for about the first 20, 25 years of my life and then just a little bit uh, north and west of Orlando. So I've always been here, but yeah, that um it, it still is a is a really big deal on the outskirts of that particular county for citrus for cattle. I still know a lot of people, you know. There's some names that I could throw out that you would know. Probably a lot of people on your show might not know, but if I listed three or four names, those are old school, really at the start of uh the 20s and 30s of, of really running and having a lot of property here in Central Florida. So yeah, I've I've uh, I'm happy. My kids are all also from right here in Central Florida, so that's it's very unusual. Most of the people come here; they're they're not born and bred here. But uh, you, you and I, it sounds like are some of the few.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, were you groomed for that uh, role
1: at Gatorland? No, you know, it was a summer <laughs> job. I don't know. I don't know if you can be groomed to, to work with alligators. I, uh, you know, my first job there was really selling fish. We had frozen fish. It was such a, it was a wild racket for like five bucks. You buy a tray, it had three frozen fish and you would throw that to the alligators. So, you know, we we were paying people, you know, people were paying us actually to come inside, then pay to get the fish to feed our own alligators. It was awesome. Um, So I worked at a little stand there, drove a little miniature train. You and your daughter probably remember that. Um, I worked in the snack bar. I actually did eat alligator meat every single day. Um, Worked in the retail store. Was Probably my favorite was working in the photo area. So I had to go get a baby alligator and a boa constrictor snake. The baby alligator, there was no door to get into this thing. I had to climb over this big, this square cinder block-like area where there were baby alligators in there. There were probably only about... I don't know foot and a half two feet but they still had razor sharp teeth you had to jump into that pen some of them would go into the water i'd single out the one i wanted put my hand on it close its mouth get some duct tape to put around its tape its mouth so that people could hold on to the alligator they wanted to touch an alligator that was one thing but then i had to go into a boa constrictor container. Figure out which snake I wanted, get the one so that I could put it around people's necks, and we would take a Polaroid picture. You'd get the picture at five bucks to hold on to the alligator and put the snake around your neck. And I actually have a scar from one of the boa constrictors. You know, contrary to what people believe, they do have teeth, and they they snagged on a, to my hand, and I just sort of ripped it out. And it got stuck in my knuckle. It was, hmm. it was, it's still there. Never got bitten by an alligator like a lot of the other people, but. I love that job. It was fun. I even worked on the alligator insemination program, uh, which I don't like to talk about, but that was with the University of Florida. Just everything you could think of other than the big main attraction. They did two things back then. The alligator jump rope show. I wasn't certified to do that. That's where you you throw you know meat into an alligator. And actually, they didn't have alligator wrestling back then at Gatorland. They do now. I certainly wouldn't have even wanted to do that. So, yeah, man, it was good. <laughs> Well, talk to me a little bit about what led you into hospitality
0: and, and how you got into, you know, it's essentially corporate training, right?
1: It was, yeah. You know, it probably started with Gatorland. And, and I say that because that was my first foray really into hospitality. I think... Most people that come through the Orlando area know we're just we're, we're rich with restaurants, hotels, retail stores, theme parks. So I, I look at all of that in the hospitality area and dealing with guests and having to think on your feet and have a sense of urgency and you know all of that stuff. You you really you can make some money, but it is all predicated on you hustling and smiling and taking care of people. So you know, that was my first gig, but I did a few other things. I worked at a little restaurant chain called Racks Restaurants. Um, I had a background for three years working at Olive Garden. Um, That was back in the mid to late 80s, when it was one of the fastest growing restaurant chains in the country. They were opening up an Olive Olive Garden every seven days somewhere in the country. So it was crazy town. I got to be a trainer doing that. And that, that really got me enough experience for me to start at Hard Rock. But before that, I actually went to school, went to college to be a musician. I thought that I was going to be a a rock and roll star. Um, I actually do have my degree, my AA degree in music performance and education. But, you know, my voice was very classically trained. So it's choral, church, you know, a, a few opportunes. I could still do a wedding or a funeral if somebody wanted me to go and do that but it wasn't the cool rock and roll sound there's no way that I could hit the notes or 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 sing really great rock and roll or pop music like all my awesome musician friends so because i found out to make a living doing that you had to be awesome you had to be a monster and i just wasn't i uh, switched careers i got into public education i taught school for 6 years started off as a substitute teacher and then got into some full time work i actually really liked that as well but you know, I, I just realized, you know, do, do I want to just be, let's say, a music teacher, or do I want to be a teacher of one specific topic? And by the way, I needed some money in the summer. Teachers don't make any money in the summer, so I took a summer job at Hard Rock. And the only reason I got that is because of the time that I spent at Olive Garden. So I just told that guy that was doing the, the interview, I said, Listen, I, I just want to be a well paid host. I don't want to be a server, or bartender. I'm not looking to get promoted and be a tipped employee, which is kind of the way that's the pathway most people go because that's where the money is. I said, I'm going to wind up being your highest paid host. I guarantee it. But I just like being around people. I want to stand up front and touch all the people coming in. And at that time, that hard rock in Orlando was the busiest restaurant in the world. They pumped about 7,000 people a day through that thing doing about $35,000 hours. Now, again, that might not mean anything to some of your listeners, but it, that is unheard of in the restaurant world. That hard rock still to this day will do 40 to $42 million on any given year. So to be up there and just you know make a name for yourself and, and have fun with 7,000 people and, and all of a sudden... You know, you get recognized. People notice you a little bit more. All of the managers were trained in Orlando. Everybody, no matter where they worked at a hard rock in the world. Now, when I started, there were only 12 hard rocks. But they all came to, to Orlando. Whenever there was an opening, I got to get pulled to do that as a trainer. So I did all that for about two and a half years. Then I moved into management for a year. And just because I had uh, the teaching background, I had the training background, somebody gave me a shot to just be on the training team. So I was just, I started off, honestly, Dave, as a corporate trainer. I was working, let's say, on the employee manual or shooting some videos, small little stuff. But then, you know, you wind up getting more and more responsibilities. And ultimately, when my boss moved on, I took over his role and just wound up having this great team of nine people. And Pretty much anything you can think of from a training and development standpoint, print, e-learning, video, instructor led, opening up properties. I opened up about 60 hard rocks around the world. Um, you know, and, and my hair didn't go up back then, it went down. I had a long mullet. I had two and a half feet that I could sit on. So somebody was paying me to go and talk about stuff that I already loved and I could look and be and say and do whatever. Man, there, there was no reason for me to leave. And that's honestly the culture, the people. That's why I hung around for over two decades. I've absolutely fell madly in love with that brand. Talk to me a little bit about
0: how you made the, the transition into, into speaking. Um, you do keynotes and all that. Like, yeah. tell me a little bit about that and, and maybe some of the, the gigs that you've had uh, since leaving the Hard Rock.
1: Yeah. So I left Hard Rock in 2012. So like I said, I was there 21 years. Um, but the last 10 years that I was there, almost 10 years, I can, I can actually go all the way back to 2003. I know the exact date as to when I actually did my first speak engagement. And it was really kind of a goof. Somebody called the Corporate Support Center at Hard Rock and said, listen, we have a company. We're in Colorado. At that time, we did not have a hard rock out there, but these were people, grassroots, hardworking people that said there's no hard rock, but we hear the story is awesome. Could there be somebody from your team that could come in and, and talk about this over lunch? Honestly, it was like a brainless mini orientation. So I was like, yeah, I'm not even going to send anybody. I like doing that stuff anyway. I just went and spoke over lunch. It had no meaty topic. It wasn't like leadership and culture and service and all that. I just told the hard rock story. And in that hour, exactly what you would think happened. There was somebody that was in the back of the room and they came up afterwards and said, Hey, can you come do this at my company? And how much do you charge? And so that's really when the light bulb was like, Oh, you can make money doing this. And, and I, you know, I probably went very, very low on that dollar amount. Um, but, but once you do that, it just sort of snowball. So I started doing it on the side as a side hustle. But I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing anything I wasn't supposed to do with hard rock, um, you know, and I want to make sure there was no conflict of interest. So, although my boss knew that I was always doing this on the side, I did charge people, but I never took any money, I gave it all to hard rock. So now I'm a training and development guy as a revenue generating initiative, which doesn't happen. We spend money. The fact that I was making money was crazy. So now I'm funding different initiatives. I can hire a few more people. I never, ever went over budget ever because I could just pull from that little you know repository of money that was coming in. So I think when I left in 2012, I was probably doing about one a month. Um, you know, which is respectable. That's not what most speakers do. Most of them will do a lot more than that. But to be doing 10, 11, 12 on the side, making some dough, thinking uh, they're just falling in my lap. I'm not even really trying. I'm not marketing. I'm not crazy busy thinking about it. It just happens. And, And as time went on, I also weaned myself off of hard rock. I wasn't talking about the story. I started to teach a lot of things that I was doing in our corporate university or things that maybe... I felt like I had some experience, some knowledge. It was in my wheelhouse. So I I just, when I finally got to the point to say, man, I love this gig, but I'm probably in everybody's way. I got several people that are promotable. I've been here a long time. We've won every award I could think of in print and video and e-learning. I just said, I think I'm going to make a run at this. And just jumped off the deep end and, uh, Man, I've never looked back. I I had an absolute blast doing that. Um, you know, at one point I was exclusive with a speaker bureau. Now I have a speaker agent that works on my behalf and I can talk about some of that stuff. But man, I, I probably I run the gamut. I've had my first year, only had about 20, 22, I think, speak engagements. Um, at a year that I had almost a hundred, there were like 95 engagements and then COVID hit. And we had nothing zero no money coming in at all there's no events nobody's traveling so we started to do more of this you know it, it if there was ever a silver lining because of the pandemic although my speaker friends including me we invested in lighting and cameras and and made sure that we could do more of this virtually versus one-on-one and even now uh, I, I'm probably do about one fifth of my engagements are in fact virtual. And I'm still doing 40, 45 engagements. So it really depends on what's going on in the world. But uh this is what I do for a living. I have some other businesses on the side, but the 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 keynotes that that's my absolute love. That's my jam.
0: And then also you've got a podcast. So yep. how how did you end up uh falling into that?
1: Yeah. So my business partner's name's Brant Menzoir, um, who's also a keynote speaker and we're both authors. Um, at that time, I was exclusive with the bureau, a speaker bureau, who, again, they go out and hunt for you. They're marketing all the time and they'll take a percentage of whatever it is that gets booked. So I'm happy to pay them that because I wouldn't get that on my own. I can do all the work I want to in my local Central Florida area or go online, but these guys know what they're doing and. You know, I wanted Brant to be with that group. I walked him into them there up in Washington, D.C. Um, During that trip, we had talked about writing a book together. So at that time, he and I only had one book on our own. I was in the process of doing my second, and so was he. But we thought, let's do something together. Um, and, And we just thought, man, how much fun can we have doing something like that? And uh, while we were up there, we got snowed in into the airport. It had been many, many years, since I actually had to sleep in an airport. But uh, we did that night, but we didn't sleep. We just stayed up all night and started to think, what would we be able to put down in a book? Let's do it like a... um, you know, one of these inspirational books where every single day there'd be a different phrase, a different piece of advice, some gym night some brand isms. And so we thought through all those. Let's get 365 of them. So there'd be one for every day. When we got to about 150, we'd run out of everything we could think of. And then we thought, well, we could get some others from our friends. And um, that that was the marching orders. And we were halfway done with doing what we were going to do. When we got back home a few days later, Brandt said, why are we doing a physical book? why don't we do the exact same thing, but let's do it on podcasts. At that time, there were only 750,000 unique podcasts. Now there are four and a half million. I mean, and that's just four years ago. It has ramped up exponentially. And of course COVID everybody wanted to have a show. So it's just been blowing up, but back then it was fairly unique. There were a couple big dogs out there and we were able to get some, some of those actually onto our show. And that's one of the best ways to grow a podcast is to be a guest On somebody else's podcast and vice versa. So we thought this is going to be great. And that's, that's sort of how it worked. But we wanted to make sure it was unique. 30 minutes, you know, one great piece of advice, best thing you've ever heard, best piece of advice you've ever heard. And we would get the guest on there. It was a low barrier entry. um, But was sharing with you before we got started on the show today that we've changed the format a little bit now we focus on topics what are the most important issues or obstacles that people are facing whether it's anxiety at work or maybe it's how do you go and find great talent it could be as as crazy as how do i write a hit song you know, how can I be an effective influencer? How do I start a YouTube channel? Why you should never start a YouTube channel, whatever it is, we just have fun and we go and find the right guest. A lot of these people we know, and some of them are are starting to come to us as well. So we've been having a lot of fun. It's called Fought, Set Rock. We'll have you on there at some point, man. I'd love to do that.
0: Uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're practically neighbors. We got to get yeah, it here are. before then. Yeah. You know?
1: Yes, and I'm sure you got a lot of thoughts at rock. We'll we'll definitely go and have a coffee somewhere and, and talk shop. I'd love to do that.
0: All right, cool. Well, um y- you mentioned that uh, you know, you would discuss you know, their best piece of advice. Yeah. L- looking back over the course of, of all the interviews that you've done, does anything stand out to you?
1: Man, there's some pretty good ones. Um, You know, Soledad O'Brien was on our show, pretty well-known celebrity anchor, used to be at CNN. Um, She had some stuff that she went through and and, uh, her best advice was, listen, no matter what happens to you, you're allowed to beat yourself up and cry about it for 24 hours. But on the 25th hour, you got to get over it. You got to put it behind you. And so you know, for a lot of people that were dealing with a lot of issues. And I think her episode was either during or just before COVID. Certainly there's been all kinds of things that people go through now, but I thought that was pretty good. You know, it's going to take people a little bit longer uh, to get over some things, whatever it is. But she said, ball your head off, get all that out of your system. You're allowed to boohoo for 24 hours and then move on and be positive. And I personally am already a pretty positive guy. I'm a believer in Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. I think when you throw that out there, a bunch of awesomeness occurs. And I've sort of lived my life through through that lens. But, you know, I've, I've got issues as well. My father died last year of colon cancer, um, was a firefighter as well. That was his background. He was actually volunteer firefighter, a captain in uh, Osceola Counties. Uh, system that was probably about 20 years ago. Also a policeman and and did a whole bunch of other things, but really helping people and being of service to people was his life, and that really affected me a lot. I wound up luckily I was in a position that I could take off 28 days in a row to be with him in his hospital and and through the end of his life. Um, a lot of people don't get a chance to do that, but you know, that was pretty tough. And I would think to get through that, it it took me a little bit longer than 24 hours, as Soledad said, but uh, yeah, at some point you got to get back into the game. You just can't wallow around in i I wouldn't say negativity, not something like that. It's just, it's an obstacle. It's an issue. And it's different for different people, but the sooner that you can pass through that or talk about it with other people or use some mentors, man, it's uh, a, it's a, I thought that was a great piece of advice. Um, you know, we've had so many good ones. There are a lot of people talking about being your authentic self, which is obviously very popular, very relevant right now. Um, I'm trying to think which one would maybe stick out the most. I, we've had people on there talking about how to deal with a founder. You work for somebody who started the business and these people are wacko, but you can't fight them. You got to lean into it and look at it as an opportunity. Um, you know, they run the gambit. Some of them are personal, some of them are professional. But I would say Soledad is, uh, is one that really stuck out to me probably more than anything else.
0: This show titled From Embers to Excellence, it, I, I started off to kind of explore uh, moments in our lives that, you know, stand out because of some poor decisions that we made that led to you know a fiery crash and how did we overcome that what were the lessons that came out of it you know do you does anything come to mind when
1: yeah, you know, I, that's a great question. I, when I think like that, I talk about failures and and falling, you know, forward. And if you're going to fail, go all in. And uh, you know, I don't know if I thought about these. These happened to me, but these were both work related. Both at Hard Rock. I was uh, I was on a little bit of a vacation in the Florida Keys. So you know that that's probably. And I was in the upper keys, but it was still about five and a half, six hours away. Um, I had a real desire to want to change some things that were going on with learning and development at Hard Rock. And I was really pitching a very crazy idea. And I went around my boss and put together this master plan and wanted to have a meeting with the CEO and did arrange the meeting with the CEO. Um, But I had somebody on my team that I had sent all of this information to make copies to have it ready for me. And I literally did not want to wait. It was during budget season. So I drove all the way in the middle of the night to get to the office early before everybody else to pick up that piece of paper and then have the meeting first thing with the CEO before my boss got into the building and then I could get out and go back on my vacation. Uh, I was so proud of myself as I got all the way down there I noticed that uh, all of the pages were sitting on the fax machine and my boss had already gotten to the office and had already gotten a copy of that and saw it all so Learning to do and then run around with your boss instead of trying to include her or him. Not a very good idea. That was not a great day for me. Um, you know, it, it showed my passion, my commitment, maybe my drive. Uh, but I would never encourage people to break that chain, whatever that chain of command is. You know, you need to have some you need to have some people that are in your camp. You certainly need to have some cheerleaders along the way. You'd like for that to be your boss unless they happen to be the obstacle. Uh, for me, I just thought this was a bold thing to do, but it wound up being a pretty stupid thing. So uh, I, I got, uh, I got you know, my butt handed to me that day for sure. Um, I had another opportunity where my uh, the CEO, same CEO, asked me to put everything on hold. And again, I had a team of nine people and I was encouraged to go get other people in the office to stop everything we were doing, if I had to, to work on this one project. It was a video project. We had a conference that was coming up, and sure enough, we put everything on hold at the at the expense of everything. We stopped. He allowed me to spend as much money to get. We, we were basically digitizing every video asset there ever was, but things were in beta beta max. They were old VCR VHSs. Uh, we had some stuff on DVDs and he wanted it all digital. Well, to digitize this stuff, you got a machines to do it. So we're on eBay buying stuff. We had people's spouses and their kids and coming in on the weekend. And we were all sleeping through the night. And, and literally, we had about three, four weeks to do this. But it, I got to the point where people were just burned out. We we're working 18, 20 hours for this one project that was going to be really cool. But I thought it was a really big, nice to have. But it was something the CEO wanted I told him that uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to get it done. And this was just probably four or five days before this event. And he said, if you can't finish it, that I'm going to let everybody go in your department. If you guys can't make it happen. And I was like, whoa, like that was, that was a harsh conversation that he was throwing to me, probably to inspire me to work a little bit harder. Here's my big problem. It wasn't any of that. There were two people that were on my team that I confided in that. That's what he said. I just said, listen, if we can't get it done, he's gonna let let us go, is what's gonna happen. We're all getting termed. And uh, both of those people said that I'm out of here. I'm not working that much harder. I'm already working 18, 20 hours. I lost two people. And it was another thing I learned that had to kind of deal with chain of command. You don't, you know, this is stuff that I need to be insulated. I need to have kept my big boy, big boy, big girl pants on to say, I'm gonna take the heat. I'll figure out a way, whether it's more money, more people, more motivation and inspiration. But I can't go over there and complain about the boss because that just makes me look bad. It makes me look weak, him look weak. Um, I, I should have taken a different route. And uh, you know, literally, I can point to people leaving the business because of something that I told them. So that was probably another learning uh, along the way. I, I've, I've been lucky. I haven't had major, major problems where I've fallen on my face. Um but, you know, I feel like I lead a blessed life, but there's certainly some leadership learnings and I'm sure I can share some more that would just be like, yeah, I can see where you'd get in trouble. But for the most part, man, I I feel like I sometimes I'm the exception to the rule. I've been very, very blessed.
0: I, I want to rewind a little bit. Talk a little bit about your dad. Um, sounds like he was a pretty big influence on you.
1: He was. and
0: it, Maybe tell me a little bit about you know, what you remember about your life growing up, you know, learning from him.
1: Yeah. So my, my mother and father, I mean, I was happy to to be in an environment where I had two parents in the household. I know not everybody's lucky enough to have that. Um, And I had two younger brothers as well, still do have two younger brothers and to have these three kids and a dog. And we lived in a neighborhood that you know, it wasn't exactly the, the greatest. I would say maybe they thought of themselves as middle class, maybe even a little bit lower. We never had any money, um, but never, ever felt like we didn't have any money. You know, we still went out every once in a while. My mom cooked regular meals. My my mom and dad both worked. You know, at one point, one of my brothers got into a car accident. My mother wound up taking, you know, a leave from a job and just never went back. She never worked after that, staying with him and became, you know, really more of a housewife especially in her later years, she's still alive. My father, though, just worked like a crazy man. And like I said, I was very lucky because he was always, you know, coming out of the military, he was in the army, you know, had done a litany of things, whether it was timeshare and selling yellow pages, and he drove a limo. But when he was a policeman, firefighter, he was security, um, actually for our, our governor as well for a while. You know he was kind of we used to get a Christmas card from Pat and Dick nixon from from President Richard Nixon. You know, he knew a lot of people in Army intelligence and and uh, really at FBI and Secret Service. And so it's kind of cool to know him like that. We'll tell you, I don't know why this is. I shared this at his funeral. I was with him personally at least six, seven, maybe eight times where I physically watched him rescue people. Some car accident had either just happened or happened right in front of us. Somebody fell off a motorcycle, two cars hit each other. Maybe it was uh, somebody that was choking, whatever it is. I have seen him rescue people, save them, either doing mouth-to-mouth or or getting there and helping them before the paramedics got there. That was part of his background. I just watched him physically save people. He was just physically a hero of mine. But, you know, it was just always fun. I had great conversations. Uh, He was an avid chess player, um, and I had never beaten him in chess ever ever. To this day, uh, you know, this is one of those big regrets. I wish I would have. He was very, very good at that. Um, Had probably the worst dad jokes ever. Just every single day was a wisecrack. Every time at the table, even 25 years after I'd been out of the house, when I go back to eat with my parents, I don't care who's there. He's cracking jokes the whole time. And now we're at the point where the whole family knows him or knows that he's not being serious. And so everybody just rolls their eyes and groans. But I've seen that guy belly laugh, uh, which makes me laugh even thinking about it. He he really was just the, the best uh, of people, I think, being in America and. You know, like the great teachers that I had. I had a really awesome teacher in high school. I had a fantastic boss at Hard Rock as well. Um, there are people that that I would look at as mentors, and I learned different things from different people. But from my dad, you know, his work ethic. It was uh, helping people out. My my whole focus on philanthropy. It didn't hurt that I worked for a company like Hard Rock. There was not a single marketing initiative that they did not have some sort of a philanthropic partner, some charitable component. And they would have words on the wall like love all, serve all, take time to be kind, all is one, save the planet. That's on every building. And it's not words on the wall. If anything, it helps people stay grounded so that we're not you know, liar, liar, pants on fire, that we actually did the things we said we were gonna do. So that helped being there. But really, that was already ingrained in me. I already had human behaviors long before that because of my parents. And and even today, I do talk about this even from the stage or in my books. I think everything is predicated on human behaviors, learned human behaviors. You get it from your parents, from school, from the playground, from your friends, from religion, lack of religion, whatever it is. By the time you come to me and you wanna be a 19, 20 year old cook or work in a hotel or, or theme park ride, whatever it is, you are the way you are. And if your natural disposition isn't to smile, or have a great personality you're you're not going to be of use to me you know you have to work hard at that if that isn't something that you've been taught so people that don't have a sense of urgency or an attention to detail or can look somebody in the eye or even even skills they don't know how to use a mop they've never been taught how to count back change you know, these people have to take a chance on them at some point, some business to say, all right, I'm going to teach you those skills. But those are life skills that you and I, Dave, probably got a long time ago. People aren't getting that now. So, you know, I just I know that my mom and dad in lieu of school, although I had fairly good education, they really went out of their way to make sure that I was prepared for life in general. And and they never paid for anything for me. I had to do it all on my own. I would have liked to have gotten a car from my parents or my school or insurance, whatever. Luckily, I got a full scholarship in music. I went to the auction. I bought my own car. Like I had to do all of that. But even that, to me, makes you better grounded for future life, whatever's going to come your way. But I will say my mother and father, both of them together. But my dad, probably just from a hardworking mentality, probably influenced me more than just about anybody else.
0: Well, you've mentioned your books several times. I, you know, coming into this, I didn't realize that you were an author. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I I would have picked up one of your books. I could, so that's
1: all right. I'll pick one up for you. All right. Cool. <laughs> I'll send I'll send it to you. This is my first book. It's called Culture That Rocks. Um, I published that in 2014. So just a couple of years after I left Hard Rock. Um, you know, I thought I probably had one book in me, and that was it. This is a hardcover. It's color was a monumental pain in the butt i wound up self publishing which is no easy feat but um i just I, I didn't want to have somebody edit the thing and take control of it i wanted to pick the colors and the fonts and the look and the feel and all the stories and it's pretty much a fairly robust story arc about organizational culture so somebody were to pick it up and they wanted to maintain or completely change, revolutionize the culture of the company, there are chapters in all of that. What I learned during the time that that's been out is that I had some people that gave me some feedback that said it's pretty dense, meaning there are some chapters on service, some on leadership, some on employee engagement. Although there was, a, there's some hard rock stories and eddies in there. There's a couple autobiographical things of me. But for the most part, when you look at the main things, those could be books on their own. And if I was smart enough, I probably would have made a whole bunch of small mini books so I could put them together. Well, this last year, I uh, started on the series. So I've been pulling elements out of it. This first one in the series, I know you probably can't see it, but at the top, it'll say, number one culture that rocks series. It was all about leadership. So this one was really, and it's thin, it's black and white. I just published it last year. It gave me a chance to talk about individuals and a few companies as well that I had fallen madly in love with from a leadership standpoint. So I still got to pull the stuff. I deconstructed the first book to take all the elements around leadership and put it into that book. About two months ago, the second one came out called Service That Rocks, and that is all about obviously turning customers into raving fans. It's all about guests and consumers and the end user. Every company has them. It gave me a chance again to really talk about the ones either that I had a chance to speak in front of or now that have just come on the scene in the last 10 years, or maybe I've done some self-study or written a blog about it, whatever. And the, that one just came out. The third one will be called engagement that rocks, which will go below the surface, which is back to my, my training and development roots. How do you get the employees to now fall in love with you and not leave? So it's going to be everything you can think of around the employee life cycle. How do you recruit, interview, hire, train, develop, communicate, reward, recognize, even terminate? There are processes in all of those that if you really rock it out and do it right, they will not leave you. And so, I think these three books, you know, again, if I was to put them together, will make a more relevant version of my first book. And who knows that, that might be it, man. That, that might be the very last book. It's taking me forever. I'm right now on this path where leadership was last year service was this year. And I have till close to the end of 2023. I am with a publisher now. So that third book will come out. So I'll make sure that I send a set to you, my friend. I appreciate you asking about it though.
0: Awesome, man. Yeah. Um, now you've got a, a a website nightspeaker.com yes sir uh, night with a with a K. Mm-hmm. is that the best place for people to go to get your books or to you know it learn is. more about you
1: Yeah, yeah. All roads lead to that website. I have probably seven or eight different websites between our podcasts, each of the books. Uh, Brant and I have a training program called Certified Rockstar. We have another company called uh, Bookie Call, which is a a book dating app, which is crazy. It's a book discovery platform, but it's disguised like a, a dating app. It's hilarious. So all the businesses that we do, but you can see it all by going to night speaker you go there and if people just want to chat with me i'm pretty good about responding and and getting in touch all my social media is there so yeah man i appreciate it that's that's the best spot
0: all right awesome so you heard it there i'll have a link in the in the show notes um before we go what was your uh your favorite dad joke that your dad used to tell
1: The, the oh my the favorite dad joke oh my gosh i don't know um Because I'm not a joke teller. That was so great. What would he tell? That would be a great dad joke. Oh my gosh, I'm being put on the spot. Uh, I don't know. I know he he used to tell a story that he used to do. I'll tell you that real quick. He had Uh, a guy that worked in the office with him that whenever he sat in the chair, it would squeak it would squeak really bad. And so he always thought that he would solve the problem. He would look at it and the guy would go out of the room and my dad would go in there and put this little squeaky toy that you really couldn't see between the springs. So every time he sat on it, even when he oiled the thing up, he thought that he had solved it. And the fact that my dad just kept making it squeak, he would laugh so hard underneath his breath, watching this guy do it. And this guy never laughed at anything. It was just, <laughs> it was an inside joke and and watching him, tell that story is the best part because I'd watch him laugh so hard trying to tell us it took him forever to get it out. Cause he'd have to stop. He couldn't breathe from laughing so hard, but man, a dad joke, I'm going to have to go and get out the book and send you a couple now.
0: <laughs> awesome, man. Well, man, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing so much with the audience. And, uh, I would encourage everybody out there. I mean, this guy is a wealth of knowledge, pick up his books, uh, Check out his his podcast and and definitely go to his website. There's a, a ton of content on there. Um,
1: Thank yeah, yeah, brother. Dude, I love it. I appreciate it. I know that uh, just reaching out. I I've, I've seen some of the people on your show. They're good friends of mine, and and just being here has been fantastic. So, dude, rock on. I appreciate you. Thanks, brother.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.